Hi, Nate. Hey, Tom. Do you know where my favorite brand of hot chocolate is Swiss Miss? Because you miss out when you on the opportunities to go to Switzerland every year? <laughs> Close, yeah. Because I think Davos is stupid. <laughs> and I like expressing that in terms of my sweet wintry dessert preferences. Yeah, makes you feel makes you remember every time that you look at an Apple Watch that the Apple Watch market is probably 10 times bigger than the entire Swiss watch market. But yeah, we're alluding to the people getting the tech executives getting free marketing at whatever Davos is. If anyone can explain to me what Davos does for the world, I would take that. I would also take an invite. Seems like a hilarious time. Although I'm known to turn down free trips to Switzerland for whatever reason. I have that on my record. Today is kind of going to be a grab bag of core machine learning topics on the retort. We've got a couple topics on GPUs, some topics on evaluation, different ways of saying evaluation, just kind of things that are on our mind. See if we can bring some energy, I think. I'll at least bring some frazzled energy. AI2 is refocusing. It's like the year of focus here. The time is now. Stuff like that, which I think it's good. Sometimes academics need a little bit of like a, a prodding, like the cattle rod thing, and I think it'll be fun. I think it's a good way to describe what's happening in machine learning right now is if you focus on things, you will very likely have good outcomes. You need to focus on stuff. You need to be clear on what you should and should not working on be working on because a few a few projects that aren't really a priority will make it so the projects that are a priority go at half speed and then if you go at half speed you'll get scooped stuff like that it's, it's exciting but I'll bring a bit of a frazzled energy because I'm learning how to set quarterly goals I'm learning to be a inner businessman and make that money you know nonprofits are still businesses too <laughs> stuff like that but. I've, ta- I've alluded to our that's GPU a good title situation. For this yeah, nonprofits are businesses too. We'll talk about OpenAI for sure then. Um, not for sure. We don't like them. We like them. Um, but our GPU problem is being solved in some capacity. I, my faith has been paid off that we need a GPU overlord to come with that, which is kind of the problems that loyal listeners would have heard me rant about before. This is leading into a lot of things. It's, it's funny that we talk about this because just a couple hours ago of recording, there's this Verge interview with Meta, uh, with Zuckerberg. For whatever reason, Zuckerberg loves the exclusive interview as a way to drop information. It's, if people are losing their mind about Meta buying 350,000 H100s by the end of the year, it fits entirely with their previous capital expenditures on things like the metaverse, like, but also like, these capital investments they can write off as core products. It's not just R&D. They need GPUs to do things like analyze images and videos. What is it, like a million, a billion images are sent every day on WhatsApp or something ridiculous? Like Meta needs GPUs to do a lot of things. But I think Zuckerberg might have also misspoke and said that they were using 350,000 H100s to train Llama 3 and that they're also going to do open source AGI. So the interview is kind of a lot. It's on the verge. I just get annoyed with people like being surprised that big tech has a lot of money. Like, don't people, doesn't everyone know that every big tech company pretty much sits on $100 billion in cash and 300,000 GPUs is like 
10 billion dollars or something it's like this is like pennies for them it's so expected for them to have these things and this is why everyone is saying that ai is set up to be a sustaining innovation in most ways like only the big tech companies can afford this except for open ai because they're funded by microsoft who are too lazy to do it themselves it's like that's why a lot of the kind of cynical takes could play out to be true. But if you you could go log on to Twitter and see all the EAC people being crazy about like, oh, Llama 3 is going to be AGI and they're going to beat OpenAI to GPT-5. I think it's all, all, all crazy Looney Tunes. But Zuckerberg's doing a good job for his stock price. Let's see what the stock is. It's up 2% today. Probably because he said he had two hundred thousand GPUs. <laughs> you I'm know, guessing that's yeah, almost pe- all of it. Yeah. People say that these things are priced into the markets, but I really don't think they are. It's like yet at the end of the day, we're still no, chimps. It's like the market is not always always pricing these things in. It should price these things in, but it doesn't. So it's entertaining. So that's a bit of a rant. I don't know. What do you want to add, Tom? Seems like we're kind of in a moment. I had a, a flashback to a relatively early episode of Rick and Morty. There's a kind of famous meme from one of those episodes where, to kind of prove an absurdist point, Rick makes a self-aware robot to kind of be this like little helper on the breakfast table because he's bored, I guess, and he he sets it up and he turns it on and the robot asks him what is my purpose and Rick says you pass butter (laughs) (laughs) and so it it actually does what it's told and it like pushes the butter container closer to Rick and then it says now what is my purpose and Rick says you pass butter and it looks at its hands and it goes oh my god (laughs) and Rick says something like yeah welcome to the club (laughs) 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 and so yeah, um, we're all monkeys, whether you're the AGI or Mark Zuckerberg or the market or e-accelerators, I guess, who are obsessed with whether or not the number of GPUs Meta has is surprising or how surprising it is. Um, or it sounds like AI2, which is going to you know, be passing butter, passing GPUs. <laughs> Uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, it's like most of the org- most organizations in the world are on track. I think a lot of academic organizations are the ones that are struggling to get on track, which is like have the minimum viable resources to participate in the new world. So like AI2 is going through this transition of being very academic, but they need to like prove themselves if they want to have these ambitious goals of being a unique place where multi-organizational evaluation can happen. So like being able to compare models and be trusted and be trusted by the government because it is a nonprofit built around understanding and trying to understand the science of language models, which is not well described. I think it's a, it's a good, it's kind of catchy, but like people don't understand what the science of language models is. It's like trying to make a scientific field out of something that is hidden by the industrial big bucks and alchemical by practice. So I think it's a pretty grand challenge to actually make language model training scientific and you need a lot of compute to do so. Because like you can't just trust the one and done mentality of it's gonna work. You have to do a lot more analysis and work 
in that regime. So it's kind of, it's like a, it's such an ambitious goal that I don't think people really understand what it means. But that's the position that they're going for. And without the GPs, it wasn't going to work. Which is like there in academia, we hear about like how like Harvard or Princeton have a lot of GPs, but it's pretty funny because I, even within that, there's discussions of like which departments do they expect to manage it better. And somebody told me like, oh yeah, Princeton's going to do it way better. They're going to have the like right structure to have some GPU overlord, so it's not all wasted. Which I just find so funny. It's like, okay, Princeton's on track. We'll see if anyone else is. And it's just like we're in the holding pattern for getting ready for the same events this year as we had last year. It's like, we'll have Llama 3, we'll have GPT-5 or GPT-4.5, whatever they want to call it. I think it'll be a similar architecture, just much better. Like, we're in that phase before everyone's kind of been broken, which is a good time to, like, at least make sense of where we are before, <laughs> like, get some grounding. It doesn't seem to have bottomed out yet. For sure. I mean, I we alluded on the previous episode to this new Empire AI initiative that's New York specific. I mean, yeah, there's a whole bunch of different, you know, sides of, of trying to scale this up, um, of trying to build this infrastructure. At least no one I've spoken to really has any, like, good intuition for when or how this will bottom out, whatever that means. Um, and it does seem like for the moment what that means is that academics are just going to have the whip kind of snapping behind them <laughs> of you need to concentrate, you need to focus, you need to uh, concern yourself quite deeply with uh, scale and, and making use of scale uh, in order to get the kinds of insights that enable you to remain a part of this conversation. If at least you're concerned with remaining in this conversation on a month-by-month cadence which is interesting. I think it's just very temperamentally not something that many academics are accustomed to, uh, which, which I can certainly speak to as a, as a disciplinary nomad, where I, even across disciplines in the social sciences, those work at a different pace than CS, and academic CS works at a different pace than industry. Yeah. I, I, I do think there's more hope for them. It's just like like there are areas like evaluation and some types of models and research which are tractable to work on. I think evaluation work is somewhat tractable. I think you can do useful safety work, even if you're not at the biggest scale, because like the safety is so much of like a systems thing. It, well, I guess that's like a chicken and egg problem, but you could do safety work of like just understanding the basics of taxonomy <laughs> that all these companies have internally that we don't have externally. So I think that's like this 2024 hopefully evaluation has a bit clearer picture at the end like we're building some evaluation tools which are really based on research and these are things that are within the ballpark of um academics i think the interesting problem is like how to communicate this publicly there's a nist call for request for information where evaluation is a major theme and it's like how do we get the point across that the government might need a private evaluation set because private companies are incentivized to cheat or not care if they're cheating on the test sets that academics and open providers are doing. I think that's like, I almost like, maybe it doesn't even matter if they know they're cheating or not. It doesn't like they're incentivized to cheat as long as they have internal metrics that they care about. So it's like, we need to assume that there's going to be some amount of cheating 
and contamination and tried to set up a public infrastructure that can handle that. I think the point is we'll need public infrastructure either way. Yeah. Um, my feeling for some time very strongly has been and remains that robust, rigorous, scientific evaluation is going to require some kind of third-party assessment or oversight, whether at the federal level or otherwise. NIST is positioned now as a kind of one-stop shop or approximate shop anyway for how that can happen. So yeah, that takes the form of these RFIs that are kind of happening right now. Uh, yeah, there's a difference yeah, it's like between... the cheating is one thing. The cheating is one thing that is on my mind. And then it's also like, do government organizations have the capacity to understand working with evaluations that are fundamentally not really like measurements? They're, they're creating nuanced like similarities between things that are measurement based but don't represent what people are using the model for so like during Mm -hmm. Mm pre-training every end steps you'll do these like question and answer evaluations which are essentially looking at like the probability that a model will say a b c or d and then choosing that so it's like looking at the probabilities in the model and then on the post training things like fine tuning we have things like mt bench and alpaca about which are quote unquote can be described as like open-ended evaluation which is like trying to figure out how to rank models based on open-ended generations, which the huge obvious problem right now is that those are all kind of GPT-4 in the loop and GPT-4 is the primary source of training data for models that we're evaluating in that way. But in reality, evaluation and pre-training is like all, like the pre-training evals are trying to point to this open-ended eval, but the open-ended eval is also still broken. So it's like, do we think that a either NIST has the potential to do work in the same way that these labs are working in, or B, is there a taxonomy for evaluation that could make it less sketchy? (laughs) Those are the two things that I would say would be a great outcome for the year. (laughs) I think a taxonomy for evaluation is where this has to head and is going to head. Yeah. Um, So NIST or someone other than NIST or more than one person other than NIST can help to spearhead that conversation. But that's going to be very important. Yeah, and it's not something I don't see private companies being in a position to do. I don't even mean that in like a partisan sense of like it would anger me morally if they tried. I think they're just not in a position to do something like that. Um, we know what yeah. their incentives are, as you were saying. Like a lot of these we all know what they're... In- yeah. Like a lot of these companies, like they don't like Anthropic doesn't evaluate open AI's models versus their training. Like they're just trying to make their model better in a kind of a like little light cone. And it's very hard to do careful evaluations versus your competitors. I think these closed companies operate in a very different way than the open models co- operate, which is like we have like the leaderboard problem and everyone can like down the models and try to fine tune them. But like these are very different evaluation problems. And I don't know if NIST can solve both at once <laughs> like, it, like like that's another potential thing to think about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is there any like what is nist most known for like why is it why should a random person on the street believe that nist is the place for this well it became a meme recently so there was this now somewhat famous 
Saturday Night Live sketch about George Washington. Have I not brought this up previously? I feel like there I don't, I don't think so. I, maybe we conversation. Have. We got to put a link to it in the show notes if we haven't. So this was, oh, it was like a couple, a few months ago. Nate Bargatze was the host. And the sketch is he plays George Washington during the Revolutionary War. And it's been a little while since I've seen it. I mean, he's trying to inspire his troops. He's speaking over a campfire late at night. It's this kind of Valley Forge energy of, like, we need to be gritty and resilient. And they're all kind of despondent, and he's trying to inspire them. And he says something like, you know, someday people are going to look back on this as the moment when we fought for how many inches would be in a foot. (laughs) And he's just like, 12. And someone's like, really? 12? And he's like, exactly 12, not 10. (laughs) Not and then he gives he's and then the, there's an exchange where he's like and there people will all remember how many feet are in a mile. So you're telling me Nist is going to say how many elements eight, are in a batch? <laughs> well, it's like I don't think Nist's name comes up. I think it's just sort of like the the joke of the sketch is that you know they keep trying to bring up things like racial equity and George Washington just sort of like dissociates and he just doesn't acknowledge. <laughs> Of that stuff he's just like no standards and weights and measures is what this revolution is about and our, our right to make them what we want um yeah so like nist held like, like the standard measures like they held like the, yeah. the pound right is that's what they're known for and it's i just like i have a mental historically yeah that all, mm-hmm. grappling standards like, what the relevant equivalency will be for an AI system or a computing system relative to when we had things that were like clear standards. Like it's just such a, the term standard almost like barely applies. We still have this unanswered. There's this kind of macro question, right? Which is people have been largely academics, but people have been sort of fantasizing for years of what like a federal bureau of algorithms or an FDA for algorithms might even mean or what that would look like. And a lot of people are like, no, that's not like going to happen or that's not warranted. That's recently played with the whole safety versus ethics like conflict in a kind of interesting way. I've seen some prominent safety people publicly make arguments to the effect of the issue isn't whether there will be a Bureau of Algorithms. The issue is whether there will be any agencies left once we have AGI. <laughs> because effectively that will just be... <laughs> Governance. I mean, some like, and this is basically what, I mean, this was the energy behind comments that Stuart Russell gave to like congressional, like Senate testimony. This is all public. You can go onto YouTube and watch him kind of give uh, uh, some senators a hard time to that effect. Uh, Whereas Emily Bender, I believe it was, gave testimony right next to one of the leads of the NIST program right now making what I took anyway to be a kind of opposite point, which is no responsible AI policy right now means that we let existing agencies that are responsible for overseeing policy and, you know, in different parts of the economy where algorithms are being used to kind of develop this context-heavy, context-laden understanding of the stakes. And then NIST sort of serves as a kind of one-stop shop for those standards to be arrived at. Uh, that can then be applied uh, and t- interpreted or translated in terms of those different domains. So that's almost a more kind of like small C conservative kind of stance that you're seeing some, um, I think, in the responsible AI ethics of AI kind of community argue. 
to be honest, I'm not really sure how principled a lot of those oppositions are. It seems to be rooted most in um, where people think their claims to authority can be most clearly expressed at the federal level. I I almost (laughs) Um, think it's like we could accept that the government will be the facilitator that speaks a language that translates from academia to these big labs and is the person that is like responsible for telling the other two parties when they're saying different things or not on like very basic evaluation tasks or or defining basic things like what is an open-ended evaluation and what is like a question answering thing and what clear documentation on so okay so this is like a silly thing like if you're doing like mmlu which is this massive multi-language understanding task which is like the one that people tout for base models the most which is a bunch of multiple choice questions there are multiple ways where you can formulate a language model to do this where like one of the ways is that you have the language model generate an answer which is like a b c d or like none of the above and the other ways where you look at the probabilities of the respected answers and like even within a multiple choice question there are still a lot of debates on like different ways of using evaluation so like AI2's evaluation hardness for their our pre-training models is different than like what the open LLM leaderboard does, where our MMLU scores are consistently lower because they think it's a better representation of what the task is supposed to do. And like maybe coming in and like trying to make that space a little bit clearer for developers mm-hmm. would be pretty useful. Where it's like mm-hmm. offloading some of the communication standards from researchers to things that are relied upon by tons of industry right now like these mlu was a research project by dan Hendricks, who's now leading the center for ai safety like he like like the incentive structure for an academic is not to maintain it and maybe nist is the people that they shouldn't like maintain an official list of questions but give interpretations on the right way to use these tools i think could potentially be okay there will be a need for translation the the need for translation is basic, and it's what I think eventually is going to help constitute understanding and even like scientific evaluation of large language models. Um, so, like, I mean, before we were recording, I was sort of talking about like I do, th- you know, these RFIs that are being put out by federal agencies. NIST is maybe the most prominent, but others have done this too. Okay, FTC has done this I mean, a few years ago. I think it was that. So AI Now was this, it still is a nonprofit research org that effectively, like almost all of its researchers and staff were kind of gobbled up by the FTC to just sort of inform its understanding of how anti-competitive practices can be implicit or even like pursued uh, in relationship with kind of data-driven optimization, machine learning techniques. Uh, so other, other forms of this, you know, different agencies have a purview that is theirs on this. But the point is, I think that a lot of the way this is going to play out is in terms of defining what it means for AI capabilities to be procured by either government entities or across different parts of a supply chain between public and private entities. Uh, What does the vendor-client relationship look like when you are dealing with systems that are qualitatively beyond or unlike what has been able to have been built before? What do standards of assessment look like? What does evaluation mean? And more importantly, even if not all of those topics are incredibly precise or well-defined, 
which parties are responsible for which of those priorities is what needs to be sorted out. That's just not something like OpenAI cannot unilaterally decide those things. It, it just can't. Would That's like just not the nature. OpenAI asides while we're talking about this. I have two com- two things that I would like your reaction on. Are you ready? Sure. Um, one at Davos, Sam Altman said that ChatGPT would have to evolve in ways that would make people quote uncomfortable. <laughs> Any tea leave reading on that one? <laughs> So what was the full context? It would have to evolve in ways that would make people uncomfortable to do what? Or what was the implication there? I feel like he was just talk, like trying to tease. Um, like he, They were also teasing GPT-4 or 5, I think. There's some quotes here. It's like, you know, Altman believes that AI systems will need to allow quite a lot of individual customization and that's mm-hmm. going to make a lot of people uncomfortable because AI will give different answers for different users based on values and preferences mm-hmm. or something else that's like if the country said, you know, all gay people should be killed on site, then no, that wish is well out of bounds, Altman sells Axios, but there are probably other things I don't personally agree with, but a different culture might. We have to be somewhat uncomfortable as a tool builder with some of the uses of our tools. People are already uncomfortable with the information ecosystem that has been induced by chatbots, right? So people aren't just uncomfortable when they're interacting like with one of these interfaces and it says something sketchy or weird. I think we're maybe already at a point where most people have learned to kind of eye roll when stuff like that happens. I mean, think back, like that was like several months ago now or like almost, it was over six months ago now, right? When was it Kevin Roos who had that now famous New York Times piece where he said that the that it told him to divorce his wife and marry it or something like that. Yeah, and like that, that was just such a OG Sydney missed that one. So (laughs) I rolled my eyes when I saw it. Like this is I I just thought it was not responsible journalism. Honestly, that just seemed very inflammatory and strange. But of course, like I think a lot of like upper middle class, middle aged or somewhat elderly liberals who read the New York Times were spooked by this. My parents being a prime example of those people. And so I think that's what people got freaked out by the fact that no one really understood this technology as it was being rolled out. That's what freaks people out. I think people who are more proximate to it, we kind of have a more intuitive native sense of like what is worth taking seriously and what isn't. And so I think that you know, all that being said, it's not a coincidence that when there are new releases of GPT-2, GPT-3, GPT-4, and eventually GPT-5, each of those models kind of sets the pace, sets the tone for what we can and can't reasonably expect from these types of services. And so it's sort of just a meta commentary on his own business model, I think, that Sam Altman's offering there. It's like, it's only when our willingness to deploy things and allow people to interact with them without properly telling people what they can and can't expect from these things only when that makes them uncomfortable will there be a sea change but really like so what does that is that even a commentary on the model itself i think it's just a commentary on OpenAI's position in the market yeah it really is i mean they're trying to get out ahead of the election they already said that they're going to try to do election verification within the app the company is just going through the changes of becoming a real company and needing to adjust its policies to try to be a real company. I think the other one this week was like 
OpenAI removed its restriction on military and warfare from its usage policies, where it's like not clear exactly what they mean by that. I think like there's a updated statement from OpenAI that's like, our policy does not allow our tools to be used to harm people, develop weapons or communication surveillance or injure or destroy popular pop- property. There are, however, national security uses that align with our mission. And like, yeah, I think that's true. It's like, I would rather the government be working with OpenAI to understand the cybersecurity risks of LLMs or like, then have them go knock on OpenAI's door five years down the line and be like, <laughs> X unnamed adversary shut down our power grid it's like the reaction was just though like oh it's killer robot time (laughs) like like all of our brains are like freaking six-year-olds right now it's like oh policy removed that means we're all the terminator it's just like kind of a big eye roll (laughs) i guess if i were to kind of play greek chorus for a moment it's kind of sad because often what has happened over the last few years generative AI just made it worse is policy and, you know, congressional legal stuff uh, at that level tends to sort of react almost exclusively to our six-year-old perceptions of these things rather than do what I think the intent of it always was, which is help structure and inform a different kind of conversation where we're not six-year-olds and we're actually trying to evaluate these technologies based off of what they actually are able to do and the consequences of their misuse rather than just a reaction to our own misplaced fears about them. I mean, it used to be the case that these mechanisms were able to support that kind of like translation from civil society. Whereas now they, they just seem to be almost exclusively reactive and reactionary uh, on both the left and the right, I should say. This, uh, that's not a, par- a partisan commentary. So my concern is there's so much anxiety now about misinformation and disinformation and how that will affect the integrity of the election process. Uh, it's not really clear to me how we can look to federal entities or state like state-level entities, at least in the United States, um, to lessen that anxiety meaningfully. They can really only just... It's just the tail wagging the dog at this point. Yeah. So it kind of falls on up. I mean, I guess that's just sort of our our position is, you know, you're going to... Whether it's you submitting an RFI or, you know, it's it's the kind of network of researchers who are motivated to... uh, add some truth to this discourse but you have to have, kind of have to find your own way of doing it because we can't necessarily trust the legacy levers anymore because their job is really just to be responsive to public anxiety rather than to lessen it shape it mediate it get it get it somewhere other than where it is stuck yeah i agree i don't really have more like <laughs> This is why it's earlier in the conversation. It's like, we're just on track. <laughs> we're going. We're going somewhere. Still we're going track. somewhere. There's still reason to be excited. <laughs> A kind of running theme of this pod. Other things I'm excited about. Uh, Godzilla minus one minus color is coming out <laughs> in the United States. I'm very excited about this. Uh, I've already plugged the movie. And we've both seen it. 
Um, now I'm just going to briefly plug the new version, which is the best. <laughs> they, uh, they went by hand into every shot of the movie to make it monochrome, so it's black and white. Not just Wait, what into, does like, by lazy... hand mean? Well, they, they like redid the original shot compositions. So they, like, from what I understand, hired or brought on like digital artists to sort of like not just apply a black and white filter ah, to so each, like, each it, like yeah yeah it's a selective feed filter that makes it visually you make all the because you have to make white. you make all these artistic decisions of like when it translates to monochrome what looks what shade and what looks white and what looks black anyway the aesthetic goal is to kind of really make it just an homage to the original movie and make it more like a horror movie or almost like a you know frankenstein type i'm very excited about it <laughs> so it's been announced that Started to come out in Japan. It will come out in the United States. I, I recommend it to loyal listeners <laughs> to check it out. Um, it's ultimately an optimistic story. There's a lot of darkness in it, but it ends on a positive note. Yeah, it was a good film. I don't know if I'm committed to re-seeing it. I, I have trouble with black and white. What I am coming around to be committed to is I need to write up a memo on why I still care about reward models because this whole direct policy optimization thing is all the rage these days. I think so few people are still going to be trading reward models because it's kind of just no longer a needed proxy. And yes, doing DPO, which is this class of algorithms does result in a reward model technically, but like there's something weird about having compute probabilities of words in order to get a reward out where just like trading a classifier based on preference data is just a very accessible signal in terms of understanding what our model and preferences are. It's kind of as a way to answer a lot of the questions in this like history of our LHF paper that we did. Like the reward model is still just such an interesting artifact as like a closed form way of measuring what our language models prefer because the training is similar enough to a generative model, which is like similar enough to the models that are generating text in ChatGPT, but is sufficiently different that the like outputs of it are well scoped in a way that is just like a much more audible auditable tool. This is way easier when you're mapping from text to a scalar number than from when you're like mapping from the text to text. Mm -hmm. And it seems like something where we'll be able to learn more about the world, like learn more about something and what's happening than just by reading text outputted from these models. But figuring out how to convince people to actually do this is hard because people don't go out of their way to do things. Computation is not translation. It's my hot take. <laughs> you need uh, tools and methods, forms of measurement, and also sometimes I think formalisms that permit you to make interesting translations between data and capabilities um and so yeah maybe that is the saving grace of reward models is that they serve as an artifact to make that possible more tractable more interesting generative from a research standpoint yeah we'll talk about all the problems at another time because i could have a whole nother rant about how all the reward models out in the world are handled horribly at least the open source ones it's just a fact i've been writing code to just manage running inference Running inference is hard on most of the reward models out there, which is when it's when you have a machine learning model that's hard to pass text through these days, you know you kind of effed up. Like, 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 like the whole point of you releasing this model is so that people can use it, and when it's hard to use, that's just a bad sign. Just like the biggest anti-signal ever that 
It's a clear signal that these things are not prioritized artifacts that people are expected to use, but they're more of artifacts that people are releasing to be like, I released everything. You can use everything. Which, some of it is truly useful transparency, but like, we need to keep developing this kind of musculature as an AI industry to like understand what this these representations mean. Sounds good. Any final comments? No. I'm in Seattle. It's raining. It's fine. I'm in New York. It's cold as shit. Okay. That's good. That builds character. My feet, I wore, I like intentionally wore sneakers one day because I knew I've been wearing my boots a lot. And my rationale was like, I want to change it up. And I knew they were going to be wet. And they were very wet. But mm. it builds character. They were wet all day. Little wet feet. It's good to do things that are not pleasant. <laughs> be resilient. Yes. Good lesson. All right. Yeah. This has been fun. See you next week, everybody. Yeah. Bye for now. <laughs>